The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, we're here to not suffer. That's uh, what we're trying to do, or, or to suffer less. That's the main... Uh, thrust of our program, of our practice. So what makes us suffer? Dukkha Dukkha is suffering, yes. And... uh, So when I was at the Zen Center, the, the teacher was, first teacher was, his name was Suzuki Roshi. And he said, um, you're all enlightened until you open your mouths. So I think um, that what makes us suffer is, is each other or our relationships with each other. I think much of our dukkha <clears throat> is based on social, our social lives. We so much want to be liked by other people. We so much hate to be criticized. Hurts to be criticized by other people. We so don't like to be judged unless we're being judged well. Then we love being judged well. Being judged well pleases us. Being praised pleases us. But we're really sensitive. We're sensitive to uh, sniping or We're just kind of raw in some way to, in this realm of... I mean, we might have social skills that cover it up, but it's what gets to us, this social stuff. I was at my, uh, <clears throat> my health club a couple of days ago, and I... Uh, Nobody there that I know meditates. They're all kind of jocks. And, and, and they're friendly, you know. They're wholesome, friendly people. And I like them. And we get, we, I'm, I feel very friendly to them and have some good, warm relationships. And this one guy, um, he... Uh, he says, where have you been? I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. And I said, oh, I was on a retreat, a meditation retreat. So he knows I meditate. I've told him from time to time. <clears throat> and then as I was stepping out of the shower, I thought I heard him say to another jock guy, um, have you done your meditation today, John? And, you know, that was just, it was a faint thing that just sort of drifted toward my ear and and I thought wow he's making fun of me so um, I thought I need to remember this because I'm talking on Thursday night and I need to bring this up as an example of these these subtle negativities that can float our way. <clears throat> it didn't bother me. I, I know how to practice now <laughs> very, pretty well. So it, it, but I, I, uh, it could have bothered me. It could have bothered me terribly a number of years ago. So we really care about being judged, and it's such a fruitless 
caring because we're judgment machines. I mean, we're just judging all the time. So many judgments are floating in the air. You know, just if you knew, they would hit you right and left. So if uh, the thought occurred to me, wow, how would it be if we didn't care? How would it be if we really didn't care one iota what other people think of me? That's an interesting thought, the freedom that that would present to our lives. So the Buddha, um, he categorized suffering into four baskets of twos. So these are called the eight worldly winds. And keep in mind, this was 2,565 years ago or something like that. Maybe it's 70 by now. So it's just interesting to note that when I tell you these baskets you're going to think, yeah. This is what causes all my suffering, these four baskets. But it's the exact same baskets that they were dealing with 2,565 years ago. It's a human condition. They cared back then if they were liked. Praise and blame is the first basket. Whatever they wore, whatever they were eating, whatever they did all day long, really different from us. But what wasn't different was they really liked to be praised and they were really afraid of being blamed. Isn't that interesting? Another basket is very similar it's um, craving, wanting so much to be thought well of in our groups, to have a good reputation, to have a good reputation in our family, to be thought well of in our, where we work, by our cohort, by our boss, to be thought well of in our group of friends, to be thought well of in our sangha. And the deep fear of being an outsider, being marginalized, not being important to the group, or disliked by the group. Remember my daughter, she came home one day from fifth grade, and she said, Dad, I'm a popular kid. I've met, she was so happy. She, the, she'd been blessed by being befriended by the popular girl in the class, by Stefana. So she was all of a sudden, she was a popular kid. It's great. Dream come true. I was part of a uh, sangha group of uh, uh, this is a, a small group of le- leaders in that sangha. Not only uh, dharma teachers, but also um, administrators and you know officers and like that. So we did a check-in in a round, and we went around and we said. The question was, do you feel like you are an insider or an outsider here? And every single person said they felt like they were an outsider. These are pretty developed people spiritually. They all felt like outsiders. 
Because, you know, in these situations, these are subject-object dichotomies. These are dualistic uh, paradigms. I have faith that you, your praise, will make me happy. I have faith that your group blessing to me will make me happy. And I have faith that your criticism will make my life meaningless and worthless. So how can you feel like an inside in a situational insider in a situation like that? You're already subject, object. Does that make sense? This is a subject-object paradigm, a dualistic paradigm. And, and this paradigm, the fundamental fuel for this paradigm is anxiety. Anxiety to be liked, to have a good reputation that I won't, that I want to, I, you know, it's like fear that I want it. And then when I get it, fear that I'll lose it. There's not much resting place here. Another basket is wanting material things, money, whatever you want, goods, pleasure, chocolate cake, subject, object, chocolate cake really want that chocolate cake. But in fact, after I've had two bites, I don't really care about that chocolate cake anymore. It's the wanting. It's this wanting that drives us. I think we're more in love with the wanting. That's really what drives us, the anxiety. I read a uh, study, uh, two studies. One said 62%, another said 68%. But whichever, the a majority of Americans go to bed worried about money. There's a saying, and this is an ancient saying, so it shows you they were in the same place way back then that if gold rained down from the heavens, there wouldn't be enough gold. There's never enough money. This teacher, Aya Kema, she talks about a student of hers who is extraordinarily wealthy. He has millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars. She spend, he spends all of his time flying all over the world trying to find places to invest his money. She said she's never met a more unhappy person. Another study, this was a study from Princeton, showed sort of similar to the chocolate cakes, you know, it's that if you make, now I know this doesn't, this isn't appropriate to the Bay Area where such an expensive place to live, but this was, you know, across the United States, if you, if you make between seventy-five and $100,000, making more money will not make you any happier. You're, that's the sweet spot, seventy-five to $100,000. You can make millions and millions and millions and you wouldn't be any happier. 
than those people. If you make less, you know, then you're deprived of certain basic comforts, so you're less happy. Yet there's this drive for more and more money. A friend of mine is getting, well, he's a distant relative, actually. He's getting uh, divorced. And I know that he makes in the, you know, six figures, well into the six figures, but he's, he's talking about becoming impoverished from the divorce. He really fears he's getting, going to be impoverished. And what do people do with their money? They put it in the stock market. So say um, you've, you've built your savings up to 100000 500000 maybe a million. And it's in the stock market. And the stock market does a normal correction of 10%. And in a few days, you've lost $100,000. It's a slippery slope. Can you imagine how much a person who has $5 million in the stock market feels when it goes down by 10%? I mean, you think you're really wealthy, $5 million, but... He's lost a half a million dollars in a few days. And it doesn't mean that it's going to stop there. In 2008, it just kept going down. And you can't get out because if you get out, you know, you're going to miss the rebound and you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll just be stuck with this huge loss. So people just stayed in and stayed in and they lost half their money. Five million became two and a half million. So I know maybe it's hard to empathize, but this is suffering for these people. They've got a house and they've got cars and their kids are going to private schools and and it's based on five million and so This is really powerful conditioning. These drives are ancient. Not only do they come you know, from civil, ancient civilizations like Buddha's time, but our primal ancestors, they had these um, powerful drives, desires to go out and get stuff hunt and gather, procreate, the power to procreate, lust is as powerful as the momentum toward death, the momentum to live, to life. And they had to bond together in their tribe for their survival. They had to trust each other because neighboring tribe might come in and steal their wives and their children and kill you and take your take your food take your stuff animals giant rats way back then life was based on fear and desire and fighting. It's been that way through history. So this is powerful conditioning, this, this, uh, this wanting, this social wanting and material wanting and social fear and material fear is ancient conditioning. It's faith in karma Faith in objects. Objects, whether these objects are people or things, 
objects are going to make us happy. And the fundamental driver of this faith is anxiety. And it's dukkha. It's suffering. But suffering can push us in a different direction. Suffering can push us to scramble more for that, what we're not getting. And if we don't get it, you know, we... uh, we don't get what we want or if we never got what we want we can be our lives can seem worthless and we can be miserable and we can become addicted to drugs and addicted to something and be depressed even suicide we can't stand to have a worthless life a life without meaning the, without the meaning of validation or things that we think make us valid human beings. But this suffering can impel us in a different direction. It can impel us to relinquish. Relinquish it all. To take a 90 degree turn away from objects and turn our awareness back to subject. All of this is going on in presence. It's all going on in subject. All of these processes are being created here. And rather than thinking of the world as subject and object, we could conceive of the world, and there's good reason to, con- to, uh, to think this. When we take this 90-degree turn and absolutely put our faith in presence that it's all subject. It's all presence. It's all right here, right now. There is no object. Just here, right now, to be appreciated. To be kind to. To be wise about. So, the subject-object is a karmic field. <clears throat> and this faith is in a dharmic field, a field of dharma. A field of... <clears throat> I don't want to... I've been accused of sounding too Zen, but a field of oneness a field of non-duality, a field of beingness, a field of here. So there are, there, there are um, a lot of elements to this faith, to this faith in Dharma. And I'm going to break it down into an intellectual element, a volitional element, and an emotional element. <clears throat> we all start with the intellectual element. It makes absolute scientific sense that we're all interrelated. This is one unified being here. If you looked at this situation from a giant magnifying glass in the sky, you'd see a bunch of atoms we just be everything be just a bunch of atoms bumping against each other. No subject object, one field of atoms. The Greeks and the early Buddhists 
said that everything is made up, we are made up, of four elements. And we can experience this. Earth, stuff, hard, material, bone, flesh, water, the flow of blood, the flow of liquid, air, breath. We breathe. We breathe each other's air. We breathe with the trees. And fire. We're warm. And everything is warm to some extent or cool, but, you know, some degree of warmth, some some liquid, some, all of these elements are everywhere. There are many, many uh, ways to um, illuminate this non-duality. Um, the six sense organs, you know, that we, we, if all we are is our eyes, ears, taste, touch, uh, hearing, and thinking. That's all we are. We create it all with all with that. So we have subject, and this is, and we we step into this with intellectual faith and subject. When I first was introduced to Buddhism, it was through Alan Watts, who was a uh, early American Buddhist philosopher, and uh, he very ma- he made just amazingly clear this non-dualistic space, timeless, non-dualistic, boundless space that we are existing in. So intellectually, faith. So, um, volitionally, we leap to faith. We suffer. I know I did. I suffered and I sat. I leaped to faith. I leaped into this presence. I think we do that when we sit, when we sit and meditate for the very first time. It's, a, it's a, a volitional, a visceral turning toward presence, away from subject-object, letting go of subject-object. There's a simile about... Uh, group of people who were on one side of a river and there was famine and animals were coming at them and they were being attacked. I don't know, all kinds of horrible things were happening on their side of the river. And so, and there was safety and they jumped in the river. There was safety on the other shore. So they, and they just, that's the volitional simile for faith. And it's good to, um, have a sense of this volitional aspect of our faith. There's a strength in it. There's a momentum in it. And it's good to be in touch with that. This faith is a crucial point. We have doubts. We have doubts about what we're doing. So we have to go back to our faith. And faith brings us back to practice. So some people with this volitional element, um, they use it to become devotional. Um, They bow. They bow to the Buddha. They're not bowing to a god. They're not bowing to a person. They're bowing to the unconditional. They're bowing to space. They're bowing to heart. They're by the, the bow, 
is a volitional validation of the wonderful peace and space and relief a presence of non-duality letting it soak in I bow I bow to the Buddha at the Zen center we did we did prostrations and we weren't doing prostrations to a god we were doing full prostrations all the way down to the ground and it might look weird and you know uh, kind of you know cultish but you know it wasn't it was just powerful inspiration to embody our faith our faith in this just this you know the more I practice the longer I practice the more I think the real work or not I shouldn't value it so much but a lot of the work for me a lot of the work is off the cushion I used to think it's on the cushion I sit and I let go and I enter into this heart of presence this universal heart and then I get up and I I'm nice I'm kind I'm good I'm I take my show on the road. But now I'm thinking, gosh, all day long, act with precision, act with seamlessness, with this faith in non-duality. Speak in harmony. Speak in a way that doesn't promote disharmony say nice things about people especially behind their backs speak the truth don't lie because we validate the truth in our speech goodwill and friendliness and loving kindness and warmth do unto others as I would do unto myself, but it's almost like do unto others because they are myself. We're all joined in this unified heart. So we can do this all day long. We can go through our lives and Speak kindly, be friendly, keep affirming and affirming and affirming our faith. So there are two conversations. One is a conversation that's loaded with karma. My faith is in this person. This person is going to make me happy by liking me. So I'm thinking, how do I look? And am I saying the right thing? And is she going to think I uh, misspoke or that I was rude or that I was bragging or, you know. Is she going to like me? That's in the field of karma in the field of subject-object. She's an object, but another conversation is I will not harm you. There is no way, no way I will harm you. Of course, that would be a little silly to say. That's not, but uh, think it. Think it. 
to go in with that intention of subject. I will not harm you. That's all. I'm not concerned whether you like me. I'm concerned that I won't harm you. I'm concerned that I will be kind to you, that I'll be friendly to you, that I will affirm your goodness. I will care for you. There's no suffering in that kind of relationship. So, you know, I'm thinking that, wow, there's great opportunities all day long to practice. You should think, well, I'll practice, you know, I'll sit and meditate for an hour. I'm doing a great job. You know. When I get up, that's when I start to practice. Practicing in a field of dharma, appreciation, gratitude, kindness. There's a, uh, another thing that Suzuki Roshi said. Um, everything he said was full of non-duality, but he says, he said uh, something, he says, you shouldn't steal. I mean, I've got it written down. I say it correctly. Do not steal. When we think we do not possess something, then we want to steal. But actually, everything in the world belongs to us. So there's no need to steal. For example, my glasses. They're just glasses. They don't belong to me or to you. Or they belong to all of us. But you know my tired old eyes, so you let me use them. So it's not like we don't steal, it's like we can't steal, to recognize that we can't steal. Ajahn Chah is a uh, iconic, great Thai forest monk. He died not so long ago and I think half a million Thais came to his funeral. The king and the queen came. and Just a little, little guy, but a very powerful guy. He said, you know, the concept of no self, he didn't say that, but he said, we can under- it's hard to understand non-self, no self. That's, what, that's one of our it's one of the characteristics that we talk about. There's the characteristic of impermanence and non-self and dukkha is another condition, uh, characteristic. He says, we, it's hard to understand non-self, no self. I mean, I'm a self. But he said, we can understand we can understand non-selfishness. And he said, if you let go of a little of this object, you'll have a little peace. If you let go more, you'll have more peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. It's up to you. And there's emotional validation for this faith. The emotional validation of ease and peace and well-being and spaciousness. Relaxed. 
generosity, the feeling of generosity. Generosity and ethics. Giving. Feels so good to give. Feels so good to give our attention. in that conversation, just to give our attention. feels so good. Another situation, I'm in a conversation and the person's looking all over the room. Is this the most validating conversation for me or maybe I should go over there? How does that feel? Feel of karma. Or if I'm looking all over the room for the better conversation, the more validating conversation, how do I feel? Restless, anxious. But if I give my total attention to anybody that comes up, there's nothing to really worry about. So um, this uh, very generous woman, her name was Vishaka. She was the chief patroness of the Buddha. Very wealthy woman. She supported the Sangha. She gave so much. She also became an arhat. And uh, she was his seamstress as well. And talking about emotional validation. Maybe you can identify a little with this. She said, when I remember my generosity, I shall be glad. When I am glad, I shall be joyous. When I am joyous, my body will be tranquil. And when my body is tranquil, I will feel the pleasure of contentment. When I feel contentment, I will be concentrated. No distractions, just contentment. Concentrated here. And when I am concentrated, that will bring about enlightenment factors. There are seven enlightenment factors. This same progression is stated in the scriptures in relationship to ethics. Because ethics, when we act ethically, really purely ethically, knowing we have not caused any harm, I will not cause harm, we have no remorse. We walk around in our lives, we're in our lives without remorse. It's called the bliss of blamelessness. And the same progression is stated. When I feel no remorse, I feel glad. And so on. Joyous, tranquil, contented, concentrated. And then there's this synergy of the way we are in the world to the way we meditate. And our meditation gets clearer and more insightful. And our freedom in meditation moves along. We develop. So I always thought it was the other way around. My freedom in meditation, I bring it into the world. But now I see how being in the world with goodness and kindness and generosity and virtue is freedom, is freedom in itself, is peace in itself, and it's onward leading. Any questions? Any comments? Any
this, please. Mm -hmm. I think there's a microphone. <clears throat> Thank you. Hey, great talk. <laughs> Glad you liked it. Yeah, very, very interesting, sir. You've worked at the Zen Center, and now you're working with uh, Gil. Could you please comment on any differences? Because Gil, Gil has commented about differences between Vipassana uh, hmm. and Zen. Well, um, the the Zen Center has evolved, and Vipassana has evolved. In the early days, the Zen Center, we wouldn't talk about ethics and generosity. We just talked about meditation. But it was the same with Vipassana. And now at the Zen Center, they're talking about ethics and generosity and the, the beautiful states of metta, loving kindness and equanimity, the boundless, the boundless emotional states. So, um, it's very different. I mean, uh, the, the Zen Center is a, is a living community, you know, so they, they work with community, um, community issues. They're bumping up against each other all the time, and stuff comes up, and they work through a lot of, a lot of stuff, so it's, it's a very intense situation, um. But I'm, I'm involved with the Zen Center still, and I'm, I'm happy to see the softening, the sweetness. Um, it's beautiful what's, what's happening there as well as here. So. Microphone. It, it's really beautiful the way you talk about being in the world, and 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 it makes me think that maybe the emphasis on meditation is overemphasized or is it even necessary at all if if we can live in the world with these beautiful qualities well you know it's a very interesting question um, 95% of the Buddhists in the world don't meditate they practice generosity and ethics and and generosity and you know it's it's so part of the culture in these southeast asian countries these people they give and give you know they give most of what they own they give to the monastics and they're poor burma is the second poorest country in the world and they give everything to the monastics it's just so much part of the i was in uh lam prabam uh, in laos and I was up in the morning early and I, the monks were going through the streets and the whole, it was five in the morning and the whole village was out and mothers were holding their babies so, to, so they could put a banana in the bowl, the alms bowl of the monks as they were going through the streets. So the joyous people and you know, really, really happy people. Um, meditation is like, uh, it's like, turning toward our nature, directly going, directly experiencing our nature, intimately being with nature, meeting nature. So, in my mind, to really deeply free us, the depths of freedom, um, has to, you know, 
come from deep inner deep inner experiences and deep 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 inner letting go and the experiences of um, stillness and peace and you know that are very inspiring that can be you know found in meditation and also the intimacy with our suffering you know the the intimacy with our conditions our you know our the hindrances all the hindrances all all of our karma becomes so can become so evident in meditation and especially a retreat gosh I, I spent I remember a retreat I spent I was furious at these people <laughs> the whole time I spent seven days angry at these people yeah wow I mean it was intense that hindrance was intense so I meditate a lot I think meditation is really great and really important that's that's you're asking me that's my answer to you but but again you know people can be really happy refining their practice refining it more and more this practice of ethics and generosity they uh i brought a uh, it's on the stage i didn't make enough copies i didn't realize so many people would come but um, it's of the Metta Sutra, and it describes qualities. And I don't. It, it. I hope it doesn't make you feel like you're not good enough in some way. That's not what it's. It's. It's more like this is what you should do. This is for my own benefit. For my own benefit, be this way. I mean, it's impossible. Love every being as a mother would love her only child, right? So, you know, high stakes, but the sentiment, you know, the the boundlessness of the um, heart that's so beautifully described. So don't take it as a should, but more like the more I'm like this, the happier I'm going to be. The more I'm like this, the more peaceful, the more nice my life will be. So if you don't get a copy, let me know. And if you want one, I'll I'll go print some more out. Thank you.